Chapter 23 of The Radio Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Knowles, Fort Worth, Texas. The Radio Planet by Ralph Milne Farley, Luno and Beyond. With no weapons except a steel knife and a wooden rapier, the unkempt and bearded earthmen set out resolutely along the twenty-stad road which led to Lake Luno. All the rest of the afternoon he tramped along, avoiding the towns and taking cover whenever a kerkel approached. Night fell, the velvet, fragrant, tropic-scented night of Poros. Yet still he kept on, for he knew the road. As he trudged along, he tried to picture to himself the state of affairs in Kupia, back in Verkingi, when at last he had succeeded in getting the Princess Lilla on the air. She had mentioned the whistling bees just before Prince Yuri had cut her off. These bees were called whistling because of the heterodyne squeal with which they appeared to converse. But Mile had discovered, by means of the greater range and selectivity of his own artificial radio-speech organs, that this whistle was due to the bees sending simultaneously on two interfering wavelengths for signal purposes. When simply talking, they use a wavelength beyond the range of Kupian speech. Cabo had been able to adjust his portable set to this wavelength and had talked with the bees. As a result of this conversation, an alliance had been formed between Kupia and the Hymernians, as the Bee People called themselves, which had driven Yuri and his ants from the continent. Thereafter, the bees had lived at peace with the Kupians, a special ration of green cows being bred for their benefit. What, wondered Cabo, had the returned Yuri done to disturb this state of affairs? If Portheris, the king of the bees, still lived, Cabo could not imagine him siding with Yuri. But, whatever had happened, it was clear that the bees were at the bottom of it. Time would tell very speedily. Traveling on foot at night on the planet Poros is necessarily slow and tedious, for the blackness of the Perovian night is dense beyond anything conceivable on Earth. On Earth, even the light of a few stars would enable a man to distinguish between a concrete road and the adjoining fields and woods and bushes, but on Poros, no stars are visible. Accordingly, Miles had to feel his way with his feet, and fell off the road many times before he reached his destination. Due to the mountainous character of the country, most of these falls were extremely painful, and some were positively dangerous. Yet on he kept, and before long the lights of Luno Village loomed ahead. Even here, it would not do to reveal himself in his present state of appearance. So, he skirted the town and made his way down the steep path which led to the shore of the lake. If his island dwelling had been disturbed, he half expected to find that his boats were gone from the landing place. But, upon groping around in the dark, he came across several of them, tied up just where they ought to be. This cheered him immensely. But, when he stared across towards the island and saw no sign of any light there, his spirits fell again. It was not the custom at Luno Castle to go through the night totally unilluminated. He would soon find out what the trouble was. So, stepping into one of the boats, he cast off and paddled vigorously towards the middle of the lake. Keeping his bearings was difficult in the jet-black darkness, but he was guided somewhat by the faint illumination sent skyward by the little village. Finally, he bumped against the rocky and precipitous sides of the island, but 
Misjudging his location, he had to paddle nearly clear around the island before he came to the landing beach. This gained, he pulled his craft ashore and groped his way up the narrow path to the summit, thence across the lawns, which sloped gently down towards the center of the island, where lay a little pond with Luno Castle standing beside it. Miles ran into several shrubs, got completely mixed up as to his directions, and finally fell into the pond. This gave him a new starting point from which he could orient himself. Walking around its edge, with one foot in the water, he would diverge outward from time to time, until at last his groping hand touched a wall of masonry. It was his castle. He was home. But what did that home hold? His heart beat tumultuously with anticipation. Feeling his way along the wall, he came to the steps and crawled up them to the great arched doorway. The door was closed, but not locked. Miles flung it open softly and entered, closing it behind him. Then, closing his eyes, he turned an electric switch, flooding the hall with light of many vapor lamps. Gradually opening his eyelids, he glanced around him. Everywhere was the musty odor of unoccupancy. He had expected either his family or a sacked and ruined castle. He had found neither. It would not do for the surrounding populace to discover his return until he was ready. So, he hastily found a flashlight and then switched off the vapor lamps again. Flashlight in hand, he made a tour of the castle. Everything was in perfect order. Lilla was a good housekeeper and had evidently been given plenty of time by Yuri to prepare for her departure. This spoke volumes for her safety and that of the baby king. Miles even found his own rooms undisturbed. This surprised him greatly. He had not expected this much consideration from Yuri. But then he reflected that Yuri must have been pretty sure that he would not return from the earth and had wanted to do nothing to antagonize Lilla any more than absolutely necessary. This time, Yuri had been playing the game of love and empire with a little more finesse than usual. Miles, in his own dressing room, switched on the light. This was safe, as its windows opened only into the courtyard. Then he bathed, shaved, trimmed his hair, and donned a blue-bordered toga in place of his leather verking tunic. On his head, he placed a radio headset of the sort which he had devised shortly after his first advent on Poros to enable him to talk with the earless and voiceless Cupians and Formians. Artificial antennae projected from his forehead. His earphones and ears were concealed by locks of hair, his tiny microphone between his collarbones by a fold on his toga. Artificial wings strapped to his back protruded through the slits in his garment. Around his waist, beneath his gown, was the belt which carried the batteries, tubes, and the sending and receiving apparatus itself. Thus equipped, he surveyed himself complacently in the glass. Barring the absence of a sixth finger on each hand and a sixth toe on each foot, he looked a Cupian of the Cupians. Then he proceeded to the radio room. The long-distance radio scent was in perfect condition, but there was nothing on the air. One of the three-dialed Peruvian clocks showed the time to be 10.25, that is, half an hour after midnight, Earth time. There was nothing further he could do before morning, so he lay down for a few hours of much-needed rest. When he awoke, it was broad daylight, 3.10 o'clock. The pink flush of sunrise was just fading from the eastern sky. Less than three parts, six hours of sleep. And then he realized that he must have slept the clock around, and more. A day's growth of beard confirmed this. It was now the beginning of his third day in Kupia.
he had been dead to Poros for fifteen parts. So he shaved, bathed, and breakfasted on some dried twig knobs, which was all he could find in the house. The courtyard garden was full of weeds. The lawns which surrounded the castle and the pond were uncut. Everything bespoke of an abandonment many sangs ago. After a complete tour of the premises, Miles hastened to the radio room and tuned in the palace at Kuana. The result was the voice of the usurper, Yuri, testily calling the ant station in New Formia far across the boiling seas. From time to time there would be silence, during which the prince was evidently waiting for a reply, but none came. Otto the Bold had done his work of destruction too well. Miles chuckled. Yuri's frantic voice, coming in over the air, was a radio program much to Cabo's liking. Even the best Earth station of Columbia, national or mutual, could not surpass it. The only thing he would rather hear would be his own sweet Lilla. His recollection of Otto the Bold led him to wonder how the battle for Verkingi had progressed. Roys and Verkings on one side against Roys and Ants on the other. It was a toss-up. It seemed years since he had left the land of the Furry Ones. Otto, Grod, At, Judd, Thiop, Crota, Erkelu. They all resembled mere shadows of a dream. The only real feature that stood out in his memory was the radio set which he had fabricated. Then his thoughts flew to Yet, the city of the Humangs, with its strange assortment of creatures, including Bumalaya, the winged dragon, and Kikulmuki, the serpent. Cabo shed a tear for Dago and the little golden-furred quivin, and then came down to the present with a jerk. He was back in Kupia, clean, clothed, shaved, equipped, fed, and rested. It was now up to him to rescue the Princess Lilla from her traitor cousin. First he must find firearms, but of these the castle had been looted, for not a trace of a rifle, an automatic, or even a single cartridge could he find, though he searched high and low. So reluctantly he strapped on merely his verking sword and knife, and ran down the path to the beach. In the boat once more, he paddled rapidly towards the shore. At the landing place, sitting on one of the boats, was a Kupian, but as this man seemed to be unarmed, Cabo approached him without fear. As he came within antennae shot, the man sang out, Welcome back to Kupia, Miles Cabo, defender of the faith! Miles shaded his eyes from the silver glare of the sky. Nanan, he exclaimed, for the Kupian before him was none other than the young cleric of the lost religion who had helped rebuild his radio headset in the caves of Kar during the Second War of Liberation. As the boat grated on the beach, the Earthman leaped out, and the two friends were soon warmly patting each other's cheek. These greetings over, Cabo asked, What good fortune brings you here? He found it easy to slip back again into the language of his continent. The holy leader detailed two of us, Nan Nan replied, to watch Luno Castle, for you know he must be kept informed of everything as he waits within his caves for the promised day. Night before last, my colleague saw lights for the night, so this morning I decided to reconnoiter. Is Ova still holy leader? Miles asked politely. Yes, the cleric replied. The grand old man still lives. The builder be praised, but, changing the subject, how are my family? Both well, Nan Nan answered, though for the past six or nine days the princess has not been permitted to communicate with anyone. Miles smiled. Why? he innocently asked. 
I know not, the young cleric admitted. Miles laughed. I thought that the holy leader knew everything, he said. Well, as it happens, I can tell you. It is because I communicated with her a few days ago and informed her that I was about to return. Has no news of this got out from the palace? No, Nan Nan replied. But it explains why Yuri has kept a large squadron of whistling bees patrolling the eastern coast all day long every day. How did you get by them? Came over at night, the Earthman answered. But what about the bees? I'll tell you, Nan Nan said. Shortly after you left on your visit to your own planet Minos, Prince Yuri flew back alone from his exile with the Formians beyond the boiling seas. This was the first that we of Kupia had known that any of them survived. Yuri kept his return a secret for some time, but got in touch with some old supporters of his. First, he contrived to cut off the allowance of the Ankhs, which were doled out to the bees for food. Then, he stirred up trouble among the bees because of this. The bees imprisoned Portheris, their king, and, under promise of an increased allowance of food, seized the arsenal at Guana, the airbase at Watusa, and Luno Castle. As you know, the Air Navy has been practically disbanded because there was nothing for it to fight. The rifles of the marching clubs had fallen into disuse because other, newer games had superseded archery. Most of the rifles were stored at various central places, which the bees succeeded in seizing. Some of the hill towns still had arms, but they surrendered these under threat of Yuri to kill the Princess Lilla and the Little King. All the arms are now stored in the arsenal at the capital, under guard of Yuri's most trusted henchmen. A new treaty was made with the bees, giving them an increase in food. But, even so, they are restive and are held in check merely by fear of the anti-aircraft guns at Kuana. The general belief of the populace is that you are dead. Yuri is ruling strictly and has dissolved the popular assembly. The Pencus everywhere are his personal appointees. These facts and the burden of supplying Ankhs to the Hymernians irk the people, but they are impotent. Can a math lab struggle in the jaws of a woofus? Lilla he treated well. If he had not done so, the populace would rise against him, bees or no bees, and he has promised the succession to little Q if Lilla will marry him. But your dot-dash message many sangs ago stopped that, for it showed that you still lived and had returned to Boros, although not to this continent. That is all. Now, tell me of your adventures. But, before complying with this request, the Earthman asked, What has become of the loyal Prince Toron and my chief of staff, Ha-Babo, and Pavlath, the philosopher, and all my other friends and supporters? Every one of them, so far as I know, is safe, the young cleric replied. Most of them are hiding in the hill towns. Yuri has not risked the wrath of the populace by molesting them, and in fact has given notice that so long as they behave, they will be let alone. Then, Cabo related all that had occurred to him from the time he transmitted himself earthward through Poros down to the present date. When he concluded, he remarked, That will be an antenna full for the holy leader. But now to get to work. On whom can I best depend in this vicinity? On Emsul, the veterinary, Nan Nan replied. He lives in the village now. Return to the island, and I will bring him to you. Miles did so, and in a short time, the three were in conference in the castle. It seemed to Miles that the first thing to do was to recover his airplane, rifle, and ammunition from the waters of the pit, but Emsul demurred. Said he, huge, dark green water insects inhabit the pool. They are very like the red parasites which cling to the sides of the Ankhs, 
and which we roast for food, but they are much larger, and the bite of their claws means death. The parasites to which the veterinary alluded had always tasted to Cabo exactly like earthborn lobsters. The description of these new beasts were further suggestive of lobsters. He asked M. Sewell for a more detailed description, and found that his tallied still further with the earthly prototype. This reminded Miles of an interesting experiment which he had seen tried in the Harvard Zoological Laboratory, and which he now hoped to put to practical use. So he asked, have these creatures a gravitational sense organ? Yes, the Kupian veterinary replied, although it is unlike ours. We Kupians, and I suppose you Minorians, have, inside the skull on each side of the head, a group of three tubes like the spirit levels of a carpenter. The corresponding organ on the scissor-clawed beast is different, although serving the same end. On each side of the thorax of these creatures, there is a spherical cavity with a small opening on the outside. This opening is just large enough to admit a grain of sand at a time. The membrane which lines the cavity exudes a liquid cement which unites into a little ball the grains of sand which enter. The cavity is lined with nerve ends, and as the ball always rolls to the bottom side of the cavity, the beast is able to tell which direction is up and which is down. Cabo clapped his hands in glee. This was exactly as in the case of earthborn lobsters. They won't know which is up and which is down when I get through with them, he exclaimed cryptically. It was quickly arranged that Nan Nan should go at once to the village near the lobster pool and engage a gang of Kupian men to cut a swath through the thick woods which hem in the pool. When this was completed, he was to send a messenger to Luno Castle to summon Cabo, who, meanwhile, would be engaged in preparing a certain mysterious electrical apparatus. For the present, the Earthman's return was a secret. The plan worked to perfection. Only one day was consumed in chopping the path through the woods. On the second day, after his meeting with Nan Nan and Emsul, Miles proceeded to the lobster pool by Kerakul, with his electrical equipment and several boats. End of chapter 23, Luno and Beyond. Recording by Michael Knowles, Fort Worth, Texas.